Tonight we are in Revelation 14 again yet, going to try and finish up this chapter. I don't know if we will or not, but um, in verse 9 we're getting to the third angel. And what we're seeing here is the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. One thing I want to point out right away is the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. There is a view out there uh, that basically says that when you die, if you're not a believer, you're just destroyed, and that's all there is to it. Uh, I don't remember what that doctrine's called. What is it? Annihilation. Annihilation. There we go. Um, this seems to go against that, that their torment, the smoke of their torment will be eternal here. Uh, to me... I think that annihilation theory to say that, you know, you're just going to be destroyed and then nothingness, that's very much like atheist. You die and nothing. Uh, it takes away the eternal torment. And I believe that Scripture does talk about that. So that when the Scriptures are talking about destroying, it is not to non-existence, but it's a destruction of your soul and your body the way we know it and it is um, just there is no eternal life the scriptures talk about death you know eternal death and there's eternal life if you have Jesus you have eternal life but that existence of not being a believer is eternal death it is eternal destruction and so I think it's just kind of the way you understand or, or the semantics of it in some senses there. But anyway, God's wrath here is being poured out from a cup. And that is a common imagery that has been seen even all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to show you some of those examples here in a moment. Um, tonight, hopefully we have time to get into Isaiah chapter 34. We're going to get into Jeremiah 49. Um, even jump ahead into Revelation a little bit because they're all talking about the same thing, this event. And it is awful. But in Isaiah 34, we see that the reason that this is happening and the reason this is happening is because of Zion. And so much of because of the way the world treated Zion, because of the way the world treated God's people. That's just part of it. But it does mean that God is keeping a record of those who go against his people. Remember, he promised Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. That is for in eternity. That covenant never ends. And that is one reason why I think it's important that just as the New Testament mandate was that we should be giving the gospel first to the Jew, then for the Gentile, but somehow... Christianity has just said, ah, enough with the Jew. We're going to just, for the Gentile, that's all. And we'll forget about the Jew, right? 
this whole story here, this whole historical event that's going to happen goes against that. That it doesn't matter that we should just ignore Israel. The other thing is I want you to see in verse 10 and back up to verse 8. Verse 10 says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. It's contrasting to what was going on in verse 8. You're going to see that the devil, the Babylon, they're trying to get them to drink of her wine, of her filth. And God's saying, no, you're going to drink of my wrath. So even what we see in verse 8 was the devil trying to mimic, in a sense, God's role. That as we're to drink of Babylon's filth and lies and corruption, God says, no, you're going to drink of mine, and it is fire and brimstone. Now, this whole fire and brimstone, I don't know for sure what it is, but those of you who went to Israel, those of you going to Israel with me here in November, one of the places we're going to go is Sodom and Gomorrah, or one of the sites that may be Sodom or Gomorrah, or one of the five cities that was destroyed. And I have here some sulfur, like a sulfur ball, and where it basically would land in the ground. It literally rained sulfur down. And there are these sulfur balls of varying sizes from volleyball down to small, most of them small, of pure sulfur. It smells of sulfur. I can light this. It burns blue. Um, our guide, I showed him this. He didn't even know that. And I showed it to him, and he brought some back to the bus, and he was just giddy with excitement as he was lighting one of these things on fire on top of a pop can. <clears throat> but what happened is, it seems that these sulfur balls literally rained down millions and millions of them. And as they were on fire, they hit the ground, they start burning up, and then it basically gets encased in the burning sulfur around it so that oxygen couldn't get to it anymore. And it's encased completely around that sulfur ball with a burned area. You can kind of see it on this one if you want to come up afterwards and look. And so what we're finding is the part that burned out because it couldn't get oxygen anymore. Now you go and you dig through there and you find these things all over the place in there. I don't want to squeeze this too hard, but it literally will just pulverize in my hand. It is so amazing. Um, here's something else that we got from that area that looks like it was wood or something. I, I don't know for sure what this is. But, yeah. <laughs> shoulder, blade. shoulder blade of Lot's wife. There we go. That's what it is. <laughs> it's going in my museum now. Um, so, it is very unique. There is not any of this sulfur anywhere in the world like this. You can find sulfur. Now, they'll say, well, it's in a volcanic area, blah, blah, blah. 
There is not a volcano in the world that we find sulfur like this. It's always kind of more powder, kind of on the ground, almost like mold growing on the ground kind of thing. That's how it is. But these are balls that burned out. And it literally rained down. Everything around it is so, it's a completely different color than the other areas around it. As well as you think, well, Surely you'd see, you know, the stone buildings and whatnot. However, you've got to remember that when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, when he was on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal were calling upon Baal and he wasn't coming, and finally Elijah, it's his turn, and he digs a trench around the altar. He fills it with water, pours water on the offering. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the offering, and it says in Scripture, even burned up the rocks. There are five cities that are destroyed. It's not just Sodom, and it's not just Gomorrah. It's Zeboim, as well as uh, three or two other ones that are there. And there are five of these areas that looked like this around the Dead Sea area. So, I, didn't, I should have put up some pictures of it, but I didn't. You've, yeah, maybe afterwards, Deb can show you some on her camera. It's one of my favorite places just because it is so different, I guess. Yeah. So, the, you said it was sulfur that burned blue? Yes, yep. If I, I can burn some afterwards, I'll light it, and it will burn blue, but we need to do it outside. <laughs> So when I see this fire and brimstone, whether this is it for sure, I can't promise you that. I'm kind of convinced in my mind that this is one of those cities. But when I read this in Revelation, I want you to understand that this is going to be a total destruction. This isn't just like, you know, the Chicago fire and you've got rubble to clean up afterwards. This is destruction that's going to be going on. That is the full strength of the wrath of God being poured out. And Sodom and Gomorrah was to be an example of what is to come to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah, the big sin, the homosexuals today say was inhospitality. We clearly see that homosexuality was indeed involved. Um, even Peter makes reference to that and calls it going after strange flesh, that kind of thing. Which leads us to our country and Babylon. We touched on it last week. We're going to get more to it when we get to chapter 16 through 18. But any country that begins to practice homosexuality eventually is destroyed, always through history. And as we said last week, it's the leadership, and we're seeing, we're seeing that being pushed in leadership today. I mean, my goodness, we've got people in the office that are transgender, and it's no wonder that our country is where it is today. I think I am, with Jamie Walden, the, sink, or the ship is sinking, there's no patch in the hole anymore. It's going down. So the question is, are you going to get in the lifeboat or not? 
It's time to stop talking about writing the boat and getting it to stay afloat. I don't think it's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong. Regardless, though, you need to be saying, how, how do I get in the boat? How do I make sure my loved ones get in the boat? And we need to take this serious because God takes the sins of this world seriously. And this is the cup of his indignation. I cannot imagine the indignation of God. I don't think it's anything that we have experienced or seen, but it's coming. And I find it interesting that obedience and faith go hand in hand, as we've said many times here in this study. Do you think God is ever offended because of my obedience to him? If it's from the heart. I think that if it's out of legalistic, yeah, I think that is an offense to God. But if we are obedient to God from the heart because we love him, he will never be offended by that. So what is it about obedience that makes so many Christians upset when they see you obeying? Isn't that ironic? Well, let me show you here a few verses that are going to deal with this cup being poured out. If you recall, and maybe I didn't get to that when I did that message, the stars, God's word in the sky, in the heavens... There is, in the constellations, a raven on a serpent, a cup on top of that serpent that is tilted as if it's being poured out. Exactly what you're going to see in Revelation, the cup being poured out on the serpent's throne. A raven eating the serpent, which you're going to see later, the birds of prey are called upon to gorge on the flesh of the kings and all of that of Babylon. This picture of this cup being poured out is, I think, written in the creation of God in the stars, let alone in the Old Testament. It's not just a revelation thing. Psalm 75, verses 8 through 9, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. <clears throat> what a contrast there. But again, just as Babylon makes the world drink her maddening wine, the wine of, you know, that drives everybody mad and follows all this corruption, he's going to say they drink it down to its very dregs. The wrath of God will be taken in. To its utmost. You can't hide and just, you know, get a little bit hurt. You will be destroyed. Isaiah 51, 17, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes me men stagger. Here we're talking in Isaiah about Jerusalem the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came, I think, is a foreshadowing of end times. But we also see that in the end times, two-thirds of Jerusalem is supposed to fall. Two-thirds of the Jews are supposed to 
be punished because they refuse to worship God, refuse to accept Yeshua as Messiah. Now, by the way, if you kind of do the math, that's pretty much what we see, what we've looked at before with the seal and trumpet judgments. About two-thirds of the Gentile world are also affected too, which makes sense since we are to be united. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. They go mad because of the fear. We're going to talk about that coming up as well. So fearful. In Revelation, you're going to see they call the rocks and to fall on them, to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. Right now, you're just kind of getting, again, just like I said last week, the cliff notes. When we read chapters 15, 16, even some things in 17 and 18, you're going to get the details of this. But this chapter is just the cliff notes of it. <coughs> so... The other thing I want you to remember is at this point, I think all believers are going to be in heaven. We're going to talk about that coming up. We just saw at the beginning of this chapter, the 144,000 are not on earth anymore, but in heaven at the throne of God. And so, thankfully, we get to watch from a distance, you might say, but not go through this. This is for the ungodly, as you're going to see as we get further into this chapter. Now, another verse here in Psalm 11, verse 6, On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Raining down fire, burning sulfur. I don't think we've ever really experienced that or seen that. This is kind of a, a landmark of God. It, this is his um, MO, in a sense. And so that's why I say to find these things in the location that the Bible says it was supposed to happen in a place that seems to fit. I think this is a reminder for us of the judgment of God, that the lot of the ungodly. Verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Again, over and over we keep seeing this, keeping the commandments of God. And yet, we have people like Andy Stanley saying that we don't need to keep the commandments of God anymore. The Ten Commandments are null and void. That's old. And yet, somehow, Revelation says we're supposed to keep them. But notice the and there. And the faith of Jesus. You keep the commands without faith? Sounds like, well, Orthodox Judaism today. Keeping the commands of God but without faith, what does that get you? Fire and brimstone. Saying you have faith but don't have, keep the commands, what does that get you? Same thing, fire and brimstone. 
You have to have both. Faith without works is dead. They go hand in hand. Hebrews 6.12 We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. To imitate, to follow. Paul said, you know, not many, he says that uh, though there are 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. What is he saying? Well, there's all kinds of guardians in Christ out there. Oh, they'll hold your hand and sing kumbaya, but you don't have many fathers who will discipline you, who will tell you when you're going astray and say, hey, stop. That's sin. Okay? Today, uh, the message on Corner Fringe, he was talking about uh, adultery. Adultery and the evils, and he said, I'm sorry, if you guys are caught up in pornography, you are worshiping the devil. It is devil worship, which fits exactly what we just talked about a couple of weeks ago with the mark of the beast. It's exactly what it is. He says, if, if you don't think that's what it is, think again, because this is serious. And Paul says, and... Don't imitate the world. Don't imitate other believers who struggle with the same thing. You imitate Jesus. That's how Paul could say, imitate me, because he kept the commandments of God. He imitated Jesus. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. I mean, search commandments in Scripture. For every verse that seems to say you are not to obey, you're going to find three that clearly tell you to obey. And those that seem to say not to obey, look at the context. You'll see none of them tell you not to obey the commandments of God. Matthew 12, 37, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. These are Jesus' words. Oh, but Jesus came to tell you that's not true anymore. Well, then why did he say it? That would make no sense for Jesus to come and preach something and then die and his disciples to say, oh, now we're done with that. Makes no sense. Verse 13, back in Revelation 14. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Here it is again. Their works follow them. Now again, I got to say it. You know what I'm about to say. The works don't save you. It's your faith that saves you. But if you don't have works connected to your faith, then you don't have faith. Hand in hand. But I love this, and there's a lot of different views on this. Think about what this is saying. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now that's interesting because it seems that this is the end of the tribulation that's going, that this is going to be happening. The wrath of God is coming down. The rapture is, is taking place because we will not be under the wrath of God. And he's saying, but those who die from now on are going to be especially blessed. And I looked and looked to see what were people saying about this. And the bottom line was they all ignored it and focused on one main issue, the dead 
um, who die in the Lord. And it was all focusing on those who are believers are blessed because they die knowing Jesus. Well, isn't that what happened to the people who died before them? If they knew the Lord? So they all kind of wanted to avoid the, the distinction between these two and just focus on dying in the Lord. Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute. I don't know if I have the answer, but it always intrigued me, and, I, and I'm going to give you a possible answer. But before we do, James 2, 18 through 22, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. It almost seems to say that your faith will never be complete if you don't do. People can say they loved God all they want. They can say they know Jesus, they know God, but if you're not doing, I think you've deceived yourself. And I think you need to Take a few steps back, examine your heart, and you need to go to the Lord and say, God, save me. Now, none of us are good enough, and all of us fail. I was questioning whether I was saved this last week by thoughts in my mind, anger, Things like that. And it's like, God, if I have a new heart, if I'm a new creation, how can I have these, this evil in me? And Paul's words always come to mind where he says, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. Folks, that's why the gospel never gets old. Because you never are going to get it. <laughs> and we need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. Because Satan is right there, the accuser, telling you, Oh, you're not a Christian. No, you're not. Because... You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that if you were a Christian. Okay? <clears throat> I don't want to do that. I don't want to get frustrated. I don't want to have that. I don't know who was it was saying personality. What was that? that or you're, oh, it was you saying you, your personality you can't change, but your behavior you can And I said, well, that's a problem because I got a terrible personality too, so I... <laughs> But the point is, is we need to know not just the works, but the faith in knowing what Jesus has accomplished for you. And you need to know that every day. But if you're going to try and justify your behavior and say, oh, porn doesn't affect me. All right, then, then I think we better talk. If you're going to justify your behavior and say, well, you know, I'm justified in, in getting angry. 
I'm justified in um, doing this because, you know, my wife did that, whatever the case might be, then you might want to talk to me. That's the difference. But I want you to see there is a reward for obedience. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors. Their works will follow them. What you do or what you choose to not do will affect your behavior or whatever it is in heaven. Your reward in heaven. Behavior is not the right word. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Again, hand in hand. But I want you to see, before we move on, this idea of blessed are the, those are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I don't know if this is the answer, but in Daniel, this is one of my memory verses, and it always bugged me because I, I don't know what it means. I don't get it. It says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. But blessed is he who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now, as you look at the context of this in Revelation 14, it matches with Daniel 8. Because what we just saw in Revelation 14 is this whole idea of the mark of the beast, taking the mark of the beast, don't take the mark of the beast, all of this stuff. In essence, what you see in the first half of chapter 14 is a tribulation period taking place. And then, after this tribulation period, he says, oh, by the way, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Well, in Daniel 8... You go look before verse 11, guess what's being talked about? Even here in verse 11. The, the, the abomination that causes desolation is set up. This thing is going to be, you know, people are going to be worshiping it. it. It's a time of tribulation. And then it says, well, blessed are though, you know, even blessed is the same there in Revelation, are those who wait for and reach the end of this 1335 days. The preterists, however, would say this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on after 70 AD. So that everybody after 70 AD who now die because there's a resurrection that takes place to some extent there in 70 AD, now they're blessed in the Lord from then on. So that's the, the preterist view of that. But I kind of tend to think that there's some connection here with Daniel 8 and this verse here in Revelation 14. This little extra period of 45 days. Is the daily sacrifice still happening? No. And <laughs> that's the thing. The daily sacrifice cannot happen until there's a temple. That's why the Jews and the Temple Institute have it ready to go. That's why they have the red heifers so the idea is, is probably going to reinstitute that, maybe because the Antichrist makes some covenant with them. I don't know, we're just guessing. Makes a covenant, allows them to reinstitute all of this stuff, and then he's going to step in in the midst of that tribulation and say, no more. 
and from that period on then. Well, I don't know if I would say necessarily even for the wrath because now we're going to see more of these, the bold judgments are going to be poured out in chapter 16. And that is that right now we're, like I say, getting an outline view so there's details in between. And so this seems to be from now on, I'm guessing based on Daniel, that this is that three and a half year period of the tribulation plus these extra 45 days in there. And then there's going to be some wrath that the bold judgments will be poured out. That's the most I can make sense of it. Like I said, it gets complicated after we get done with uh, the trumpets. But um, Well, right after this, we're going to see a resurrection take place, a harvest. And so it must be a short time because blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. And then right after this, we see a resurrection. So it's got to be a short period. Well, that period in Daniel is a very short period. So that's why I, I, I really feel there's a connection between those. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 15 is going to just be one of the verses that I want to show you in regards to degrees of glory in heaven. That our works follow us. What you do matters. Yes, you can be a Christian in this life, and go about your mundane day-to-day -day routine, get up and go to bed, do the same thing tomorrow and the same thing throughout the week. You believed in Jesus, you're going to get there. You'll be in heaven. But if you're not investing in Christ in your day-to-day -day things, then you're losing out on what you're taking with you to heaven. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, that each will be rewarded according to his own labor. You see, you all don't have to be pastors. You might just have to water what a pastor planted. Okay? For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, capital D, Judgment Day, will bring it to light. And that is what we're reading about right now, is getting close to the Judgment Day. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Everybody works in life. But what kind of quality of work are you doing? It says, if what he has built survives, that you were building with gold, silver, and precious stones, when it goes through the fire, that'll come out. It survives. It says he will receive his reward. You're going to be rewarded. But if it is burned up because you were building with wood, hay, and stubble, that you lived your life to get the most toys because, the, you know, you saw somebody's hat that said, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Then it's going to burn up. Let me tell you, you're not taking your boat with you. You're not taking your house. You're not taking your cars. You're not taking your guns. 
You're not taking any of whatever is special to you here, your, your dresses, your clothing, your pearls, your jewelry. That stays. That's going to burn up. If that is what you are invested in in this world, it will burn up. It says he will suffer loss. You're not going to get what the other guy got. He himself will be saved. You got into heaven. Why? Because you were building on the foundation of Jesus. But only as one escaping through the flames, by the skin of your teeth, you get to heaven. I kind of think that Christianity today treats salvation as a pass-fail. You're in or you're out. That's it. It's not like that. You're graded. Matthew 11, 11 says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you know that you can be least? Those people who make it in by the skin of their teeth are greater than John the Baptist. Now, don't make that your goal. Oh, okay, then I just, as long as I'm by the skin of my teeth, I'm in. Woohoo! No, that's not what you should do because then I think there's a heart issue here, right? I want to show you some other verses showing you different degrees of glory in heaven here. Matthew 5, 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What commands are we supposed to be teaching and practicing? Okay. But again, the Bible is very clear about least and greatest and rewards. Look at Luke 19, verses 16 and following. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, your, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And it goes on. Those that invested a little, get a little. Those who invest a lot, get a lot. Um, we've got in Luke 14, 8 through 10, speaking symbolically of the wedding banquet of the Lamb here. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. There will be places of honor in heaven. In America, we like to think that we're all equal. Everybody has the same whatever, you know, with this whole privilege. Hey, you know what? Stick it. I'm privileged. I'm privileged because God has made me privileged. Yeah. I'm privileged to know Jesus Christ. Every time I choose to follow Christ and, and teach others to, to lead someone to righteousness, I'm privileged. I get more than somebody else. It's the way it works. The Bible is filled with hierarchies. It has to be that way. A husband has to be over his wife. Has to be. Or else it's not going to be it's not going to function well. Okay? Citizens 
have to be under the control or the authority of the police. Have to be. Now, keep in mind, though, that Satan was one of the chief angels. He was a cherub. And so just because you are in authority doesn't always mean that you need to obey because sometimes the authorities are ungodly or go against God's word. But you know what I mean here. Students have to be under the authority of a principal. Teachers have to be under the authority of a principal. And as soon as you break these hierarchical roles, the system falls apart. It's that way even in the kingdom of heaven. And so we got to stop thinking that everybody has the same rights and everybody's equal. No. Some are going to be servants. And that's their lot in life. And they can be blessed because of it. It's better to give than to receive. I mean, we, we, I could give you many examples of the blessings of being a servant. Daniel 12.3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You're going to lead many to righteousness? There's rewards in that. Now, I think I've said this before, but I use the example of a 32-ounce cup or, you know, one of those little communion cups. I think I saw one on the floor back here. If this cup is plumb full and you're this cup, you're least in the kingdom of cups, but you're plumb full, aren't you? Can you take any more? I don't even think you're going to want any more because you're plumb full. But the 32-ounce cup, it's plumb full, can't take any more. It's not going to look at the 64-ounce big gulp and say, oh, man, I wish I was you, can't take any more. That's just an analogy that, for my mind, that I say, because sometimes you think, oh, man, that that's kind of stinks. But yet, you're full. It's a different amount of glory, but nonetheless, there's more rewards. I don't know what it's going to be like exactly. All I know is you're not going to regret being in heaven. But I can tell you this, if you remember my which priest are you message, Zadok or Abiathar. The priests of Abiathar serve the people. The priests of Zadok are in the presence of God. They serve him. When I'm in heaven, I want to be as close to Jesus as possible. It will matter. I don't know how it looks. I think in our flesh we are not going to be able to come up with an analogy that's perfect that's going to solve all the problems. But I do know that you want to be serving the Lord now. Blessed indeed are those who are going to suffer for Christ while they walk on this earth in the flesh now. Verse 14. 
Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. A white cloud. Remember the disciples when he told that when he was ascending into heaven in the clouds, he says, you know, in the same way that you saw me go, that's how I'm coming back. Here he comes back in the white clouds. So I would say that it was not a thundercloud that he went up in, probably. It was a white cloud, not a cumulonimbus. Verse 15, and another angel came out, a second one here, out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So what I want you to see, two harvests. One angel comes up, says harvest, whoop, done, sharp sickle. Another one comes says, thrust in and reap, and he does. But what I want you to see here is this word ripe. I've got it underlined there in verse 15. That word ripe in the Greek is literally dry. This is a grain harvest. And that's going to be important because in the next verses, you're going to see this other angel that comes to reap in the second harvest. And it's not a grain harvest. It's a Fruit harvest, grape harvest. You're looking at the resurrection right here. This resurrection, I believe, is those of the godly. The, the rapture. He says... Throw in your sickle, and then now the earth is harvested. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Okay, here's the wheat being harvested. What was, uh, trying to think back to the different offerings, like the grain offering. Is there any, any similarity there? The wheat and the barley? One that I think there might be. I don't know what it is, though. But I think there's got to be some difference between the wheat and the barley, which is really basically Passover and first fruits. So, um, which is interesting, that's 50 days apart, which is very close to that 45 day difference between blessed are those who wait till the end. I, I don't know if there's a connection, but. So if this is the wheat harvest of believers, they're taken up to heaven right now, or maybe just taken and set somewhere else. We'll talk about that later. It seems like this must, I think, take place probably right around the seventh trumpet then, just for a timeline. So chapter 11, the second half of that, and chapter 14 might be talking about the same period here. But anyway... Um, after this harvest, we're going to see the bowls of wrath being poured out. Well, that makes sense because now you're gone. You won't be there for that wrath, the bowls being poured out. Now, you will see this judgment, as I said, more in 15, 16, and 18. But we'll talk about it more in detail at that point. But there are over 97 references to God's presence being in the clouds in Scripture. So not a surprise that we see it here as well. Now, 
for those who believe in a pre-trib, uh, pre-trib rapture. That means that we're taken up, remember way back in chapter 3 of Revelation, we saw the churches at the end of the churches. They said, boom, the rapture takes place and the church is gone and then all this takes place. They interpret this then as this wheat actually being bad believers still. So that both of these harvests are for bad people. I don't think that's the way it is. I think this is a good harvest. Okay? But just to kind of let you know that. As I said, the parable of the wheat and tares, the two have to remain together until the end. Right? It says, don't, no, don't pull them up yet. They, they have to stay together till the harvest. Well, here's the harvest. And so now the wheat and the tares have to be pulled up. Daniel 7.13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Sounds to me like what we're just reading there. Matthew 13, verses 37 through 43, The field is the world, talking about the parable of the sower. The field is the world, the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Sounds just like what we read there in Revelation 14. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Is that what we were just talking about with fire and brimstone? I don't know. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So I think Jesus was speaking of this day right here in Matthew. Now, one interesting difference, depending on how you look at it, is in this parable, who's taken first? Yeah, the ungodly, the weeds are taken first. Another way of looking at it is, I I don't think this is right, but just, when we read here that the Son of Man will send out His angels, they will weed out His kingdom, they'll throw them in a fiery furnace. Is that the judgment that we've been reading here in the first part of chapter 14? And then the righteous are taken? I don't think so because we're about to see then the harvest of the grapes and then the wrath. However, are those separate events? And I think they are. There's some separate event between the fire and brimstone and the bold judgments that are going to take place. So, fire and brimstone could be first, then the harvest of the wheat, then the trumpet judge, or the vile judgments, being uh, the grape harvest, possibly, if you look at it that way. I don't know. Um, Matthew 13, verse 30 here, just uh, prior to this, Uh, the one that I just quoted, it says, At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. 
So even the way Jesus describes it is a reverse order, unless the fire and brimstone is the first part of it. So I don't know. Well, verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So just like Matthew, he said the harvesters are angels. Here they are again. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this I have fully ripe underlined. It's not really there in the Greek. That word that we saw ripe for the other one is not here. There is a clear distinction between the first harvest being a grain and the second harvest being fruit. Grape harvest is always with reference to judgment. Always. So, um, the second angel coming out of heaven holds a sickle. The third angel in charge of the element of punishment is what we see here. Now, Babylon's destruction that we're going to read about in chapter 16 is foreshadowed by Babylon's destruction in the Old Testament. It's a day of deliverance. And so there's just kind of a comparison between those two. Um, Joel is going to talk about this day as well, but let me just read 1 Jeremiah 51, 33. We read in Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time it is trampled. The time to harvest her will soon come. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, made the world drink her maddening wine of adulteries and all of these things. That's what's going on here. So even though Jeremiah is talking about, I think, the Babylon of Jeremiah's day, that's foreshadowing what we're reading in Revelation. You can make those comparisons. Joel says this, Let the nations be roused. Let the advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes. For the winepress is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. We're clearly talking about the same thing here. But what I want you to see is this, the sun and moon will be darkened. As soon as we get, the next thing we see is going to be the vials being poured out. Guess what happens? The sun darkened completely. The moon darkened completely. Stars fall from the sky. Sky rolls up like a scroll. Look at this. Okay, moon will be darkened. Stars no longer shine. It seems like they're gone. The Lord will roar from Zion. Oh, where is the Lord at? He comes to Mount Zion. See that as well. The earth and the sky will tremble, perhaps even roll up as we're going to see. But the Lord is a refuge. 
you're not going to be under his wrath. That's what you're seeing going on here. Oh boy, one, two. I gotta wait. I was really hoping to get one more thought in here because it ties. So we're going to stop here. This is going to connect next week. And I really am excited about this last part. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because we're going to get into the blood as high as the horse's bridle. And going to show you the geography of Israel, show you some pictures of Israel to see where is this blood supposed to flow? Is it even physically possible? Um, all of those kinds of things. And also just see other verses that are going to show you where this judgment takes place. We, see, we hear about the you know, Armageddon battle all the time, but there's much more to it than that. Edom is involved. Uh, those of you going to Israel this time, we're going to Petra. You're going to want to take note of that because this is going to talk about that as well. The blood is going to go all the way from Edom to Megiddo, this river of blood. So anyway, um, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word and just... The gospel, may it never be old for us, Lord. Every day we need to just realize that you have rescued us from this body of flesh and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, we just want to thank you by, by teaching others about you, by leading others to righteousness, the righteousness of your word, of, of who you are. We want to be able to worship you. We want to be able to follow you and to, to obey as much as possible in this flesh. But we look forward to the day when all of those things will go away and that we will live in the Spirit fully. But in the meantime, may our Spirit put our flesh into submission, Lord. May we make wise choices and realize that we are each and every day in a valley of decision. So... May your spirit guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.